Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. We all think that we want a life without challenges, without problems, and without pain. But in fact, it may be in those very experiences where we grow the greatest. Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm delighted you joined me for this episode because I have a guest today I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. Chris Maxwell is a pastor of a church. He is also the director of student life, student ministry at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs. He is a a writer, author of four books in several different genres, and we're going to get into all that. But I'm delighted that he's here because this is a man who has experienced God in some of the darkest moments anybody could have. Chris, welcome to The Leader's Notebook. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's an honor to be a part of this with you. We've known each other for years and years. We both had hair when we met. Yes, we did. Hair, (laughs) past tense. (laughs) Well, that's what I always say. Hair today, gone tomorrow. That's right. Uh, Chris, um, I want to just plunge into it. So I guess the, the darkest moment of your life had to be the, the issues with encephalitis, yeah. brain injury, and the resulting epilepsy of that. Right. Talk about how that happened. Yeah, that was uh, such a difficult time. Uh, man, I had always been healthy. You know, I was pastoring a church in Orlando. My wife and I were watching our three sons grow up, and everything changed drastically, immediately, unexpected. I became very sick. Um, it took a while for them to figure out what was going on with me. He took me to a doctor. He didn't know what it was. Eventually, they took me to ER. They thought I had overdosed on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they were just, uh, they didn't think I would live. Mark, they thought I was going to pass away. Uh, and I was suffering from encephalitis. Fortunately, again, it's one of those times where God is with us in the middle of the storm, God is with us in this season of uncertainty. We had the right doctors there at the ER in that hospital on March 6, 1996, on that date. And there was a neurologist there who was able to determine that I was dying, but it was being caused by encephalitis. Wow. And they were able to treat me uh, and save my life, though they didn't save the same Chris. I, I turned out to be a much different Chris than I was before. So was the epilepsy that followed, is that the result of the encephalitis? It's yes. an induced epilepsy. Right. Um, one of the side effects of the encephalitis, a severe scar tissue in the left temporal lobe. So the whole le- electrical system of the brain uh, now o- has the tendency to overreact. So I live with epilepsy as a result of the brain damage. So, I mean, you look at my MRI, you look at the severity of the brain damage, and uh, if you know anything about the brain, if you study the brain, if you're a neurologist or an epileptologist and you see uh, the MRI results, you would reach the conclusion that this man would be emotionally unstable and would not be able to communicate, would never be able to write, would never be able to speak. And and, and we've, we've used that trick a few times as I'm speaking at some of these conventions. We'll put up on the big screen the MRI results and they'll see wow. the scar tissue. We don't tell them it's me yet. I let them evaluate the condition of the patient. And they reach that conclusion, complex partial seizures, needing some type of medication related to this, but unable to speak 
weak, unable to remember, emotionally unstable. And then I just set him up for it. You know, he's a writer and and uh, he's a speaker. Actually, you're listening to him right now. That's my MRI. And actually, out of that epilepsy and all that, you've become a national spokesman for epilepsy. Yeah, there is a pharmaceutical company that that's had me. I, I mean, I've hosted uh, a, a radio show for them uh, in the past, and I've traveled around the country and around the world. They sent me to other countries just to tell my story, and uh, it's, it's just been a wonderful opportunity for me just to tell the story. Because uh, I mean, most people don't realize that one in twenty six uh, people will be having epilepsy at some time in their lives, and then you wow. add that to those who are related to the people. We don't really. I mean, epilepsy is hardly ever talked about. It's like I didn't know about it until it happened to me. And uh, especially in, you know, some church circles, we forget that we create this atmosphere of loud music and bright flashing lights and everything that's going to be cool and new and fresh. Do we realize that we could be triggering seizures? Uh, we need to welcome people like me who live with epilepsy and, and welcome us and to create an atmosphere um, that can connect with us. I, I, I spoke, I had the honor of speaking in Japan for a pharmaceutical company. It was this huge convention and, and man, it was an amazing opportunity. I'm speaking in English. They're hearing it in Japanese as I'm speaking in English. And all they asked me to do is tell my story. Wow. I told, Mark, I told him, I said, I can't tell it without Jesus. He's a part of the story. Wonderful. You know, I have to, you know, I have to follow certain guidelines of what to say. I can't mention medications if I'm, you know, speaking publicly and saying what works for me, you know, that kind of thing. But I had to tell him about Jesus. He had to be a part of the story. Wonderful. And they told me, he said, oh, well, um, Chris, when you end this, we're going to have a short time for Q&A. But in this culture, they don't ask many questions. They may ask you tonight when you're here for the dinner and the celebration. They may ask you then, but don't take it personal. They're not, they're, they will probably have one person that will greet you and he'll thank you in Japanese, but that'll be it. So don't take it as them not appreciating what you said. So I expected after I spoke, there would be no, sure. no response. Sure. Mark, after I talked, the one man, the leader got up and bowed and I bowed to him and he thanked me. But after that, it was one question after another. Wow. They did not know about epilepsy and, and they were there representing pharmaceutical companies, the medical field. I find that in, in churches. I find that in businesses, people are unaware of the electrical system of the brain just trying to do its job. It's overreacting. Um, but we often forget not just this disease, this disability, but so many life D's, so many life disappointments and struggles because we try to put on this mask that everything is well when it isn't. Yeah. Your first book uh, was certainly um, about this underwater. You had never written a book until you had this experience. Is that right? Well, I, that, I have actually written 10 books. And so that, was, that wasn't my first book. The, I wrote a book, uh, Changing My Mind, about my illness years ago. Ah. And so that was my th third, third book. And so, uh, but Underwater took uh, everything a little different angle than the Changing My Mind book because it was written a little more for the general market. I included uh, the stories of some other people who live with epilepsy because each one is is different. And, and I interviewed my family and my friends and how were their lives affected by right. this? Because this is not singular. I'm not the only one right. whose life changed. Debbie, I mean, they had us on the 700 Club and they're interviewing Debbie and she said, uh, he's my second husband. <laughs> I mean, I'm the only man she's ever been married to, but I'm much different than the man she said yes to. Well, we have had, uh, as you know, my uh, middle daughter has a seizure disorder and it's, it's 
uh, a fact of life in that family. Mm-hmm. You know, there are times when she can't drive, can't go places, things she can't do. So I, I did not know the one in 26 statistic that you said. That's pretty shocking. But I know that one of those persons is in my family and in our extended family, and it changes things for us. Yes. They lived in Manhattan for a long time while he was at Mount Sinai, and um, he was a physician at Mount Sinai, and she she couldn't ride a, a, on the subway alone because the flashing lights in the subway tunnel would induce a, a seizure. She'd mm-hmm. go unconscious in the subway, fall on the floor of a subway. So it's it's very real. I recommend this book to our listeners on Underwater by Chris Maxwell. It's on True Potential uh, label, and I think you'll really be blessed by it. I, I want to shift gears a little bit, though. I want to talk to you about something different, okay. um, and that's poetry. Mm-hmm. So uh, of the books that you've written, uh, at least two of them are books of poetry. Yes. And uh, your style is interesting and unique. I picked out one, uh, When You Assume You Understand Me. I yes. like that. This is evidently written to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> or it's written to everybody's wife, I guess. So it says, the facial expression speaks clearly. The tone reinforces intent. The turning away turns the conversation. The interruption enhances hurt. The volume returns history. The mood adjusts to the climate. The forecast changes. The distance widens. The potential pleasure becomes pain. The sentence isn't completed. The assumptions took its place. The room doesn't include grace. The old stories resurrect. The ancient pain returns the escape begins again. The calm truth wasn't even given a chance. That's a, that's a powerful poem in the first place, but it's a unique cadence. Yeah. Uh, is that something that you've studied a lot in writing poetry? Well, I, I love poetry, um, and I've always liked reading it and writing it, but... Um, the best way to describe kind of where I am now with it, one of uh, the editors uh, that I've worked with and I've written Sunday School Curriculum many years ago, um, one of the editors that has known me for decades described the pre-illness Chris and the post-illness Chris. Mm. And he described it this way, even though he knows I loved poetry before and I've always been writing, he said, the scholar became the poet. Wow, that's interesting. And uh, honestly, it has been therapy for me because I'm a psalm addict. I love the psalms in the Bible. And most people don't realize the high percentage of scripture that is poetic. Uh, and they're, uh, in my opinion, we miss out on learning opportunities and creative thinking because we are so addicted to prose or just points or takeaway lines that we miss the beauty of poetic rhythm. Um, Eugene Peterson believes that much more than one third of the Bible is poetic in its original language. And I mean, you can just read his books and, and, and think about Mark, think about when you speak, when you tell stories and when you are preaching a sermon, you have a rhythm, you have a flow and it is not just you standing there saying one, two, three, you're taking us and guiding us in a journey. And that's what poetry does. Poetry starts over here. And then all of a sudden you're here on this side. And then you go that direction and you find a place that you never knew existed. Mm-hmm. 
I teach uh, at the National Institute of Christian Leadership. I teach a whole, one of the courses is on homiletics, on preaching. And as a part of that, not really about writing per se, but about uh, the art and science of preaching. I'm not dealing with anointing particularly, but I teach on the five elements of style. And Mm -hmm. it could be applicable across uh, genres. And poetry is certainly one of those where each poet has their own particular style. Yeah. If you could characterize the style of your poetry in a, in a word or two, what would you call it? I think the title of my other book of poetry, uh, A Slow and Sudden God, is a description not only of how God works, uh, how we see God in action, but it's also a description of poetry. It's slow. It has this new pace to it, but then it's there and mm. you didn't know you were going to be there. You're, oh. you're at that place you did not know existed. Um, I love and, it. and that, that really helps me and, and, and it helps me think, uh, because my left temporal lobe, the logical side of my thinking is permanently damaged. The other part of the brain has to, it has to overreact by, by working so hard to get the brain to work for me to remember, for me to think, for me to complete a sentence, for me to process. Now writing something I should not be able to do with all the brain damage I have, but that part of the brain has to find that rhythm and that flow and that peace. And to me, that's poetry. It's beautiful. Uh, and, it's, and it's the conversations that we have with God, at least for me personally, are not always, Chris, do this right now which we often prefer in our culture, but it's more of the cultures in other parts of the world where it's story and let's come and sit at the table a long time before we make our points. Mm. And poetry does that. Poetry invites you to the table and lets you sit there a while and enjoy the meal before you have these three takeaway points that are going to change the world. I want to ask you a couple more questions about it, but let me pause here and say, embracing now, pain, joy, healing, living, by Chris Maxwell, and a second one, A Slow and Sudden God, 40 Years of Wonder, also by Chris Maxwell. Two books of poetry, some beautiful stuff. How can they get these books? Yeah, they're all on Amazon. Uh, they can get the printed versions uh, you know, or the ebooks on Amazon, or they can go to my website, chrismaxwell.me, chrismaxwell.me, or my page on Amazon. I'm going to come back to that because you might not have had time to write it down, but now I want to ask you a very interesting question. So... What about the guy who's listening and he has always sort of had a a masculine disregard for poetry? Mm. It seemed uh, prissy or feminine to him. Mm -hmm. But you're you're a masculine guy. Uh, So is there a word of comfort you can give him? Is it it okay (laughs) for him to like poetry? Yes. One example, a dear friend of mine, oh, I want to say his name, but I'll resist. I'll resist. I won't say his name. But if I did say his name, it would be Brent, but I won't say it. All right. (laughs) Well, we'll ignore that. (laughs) No, but Brent's a dear friend and he's an artist. He does great artwork, but he is a man, man. Um, And he, he, he finds a lot of my writing interesting because of the creative narrative style. Um, but he said, Chris, I, I love your books. I love you, but I'm just not into poetry. I said, yes, you are. You just don't know it. He said, what do you mean? What do you mean? Explain it. And, and so I started quoting some Psalms to him. I mentioned some songs that he loves in his music style, his, his, his preferred style. And I said, Brent, you're also an artist. 
You know, I'm using the same part of the brain that you're using as you draw. And poetry is like those times that I was speaking somewhere and you were doing artwork as I was speaking and nobody saw where it was going. And then we ended at the same time. And I ended with this key phrase, this line, this takeaway line at the end. And you finished painting and the audience could see that we were both saying the same thing just differently. Poetry does that. And I said, Brent, the assignment I'm giving you, I want you to just pretend like you're in my class, you know, because he's he's not in school. He's older than I am. But I said, I want you to start reading a poem a day. Just read the poems and then send me what you think. He's like, OK, Chris, I don't want to do it, but I'll do it. And this is what he said to me. You, you're going to love this. This is what he said. He said, I feel like I have found something that I've always wanted that I never knew existed. Wow. Wow. How I mean, about it's like, that? think about if we're riding down the road and somebody says, have you ever eaten at that restaurant? And you're like, man, I didn't even know it was there. Come into the restaurant of poetry, sit down at the table and realize that, man, there's an appetizer. There's a meal. There's a dessert. But take time, slow your pace and be there and embrace the lines and the rhythm and the flow. You think about, think back historically and biblically. I mean, there's a, there's nobody in the Bible or in history who is more of a man's man than King David. I mean, a warrior's warrior. I, he, I, I, one time I went through and tried to analyze how many people either David had killed or had been killed by his extended agencies. Mm -hmm. And I got into the thousands and I dropped it. So he's a warrior. He's a man. He's a, um, all of those things. But his poetry, the most famous poem in the world, is Psalm 23. Mm -hmm. and, and probably th the greatest masterpiece poem ever written is the 23rd Psalm. Right. So there's no real inherent contradiction between a guy who drives a, 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 a truck all day and writes poetry or reads poetry at night. There's, yeah. that, there's, there's oh, no. nothing inconsistent about that, is there? Yeah, and think about the psalm, you know, in, in our Bibles right before that, Psalm 22. Yes. Think about maybe Jesus singing that as a kid, learning it as a child. It was a poem for him when he was little. When did he say it, pray right. it in desperation? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. That was David's writing that in a poetic, therapeutic prayer form. And then Jesus confessing it and declaring yes. it at the end. Wow. A thousand years later, <laughs> David, David wrote Psalm 22 a thousand years before Christ was crucified. Mm -hmm. And Christ quotes that poem with some of his dying breaths. Yes. How, so how much of that poetry must have meant to, to Jesus, also a man's man. So it's something, poetry, it, there is something about our contemporary American culture. You think about the phrases we value, uh, things like uh, cut to the chase, mm -hmm. get to the bottom line. What's your point? Uh, the shortest distance between any two points is a straight line. But with poetry, the shortest distance isn't always a straight line, is it? And no. So it can kind of assault our American zeitgeist. Yeah. Yeah. And, and are we willing to go the longer distance to find the better route? Mm. And poetry is that. It's like, uh, I can remember a few years ago, I was uh, driving into Atlanta. And uh, fortunately, I like to go where I'm going early. <laughs> and it was a time when they had had a fire in downtown Atlanta and it had blocked part of the interstate. 
And so as I'm driving in, I realize that I'm going to have to take a longer route. I couldn't go like straight down the interstate, heading straight to the airport on my regular. Chris is going to get there early and this is his routine. Had to take a different route. And I saw things I'd never seen before. It was nice. It was sweet. It was beautiful. And that's what poetry does. It, it helps us realize we do not have to go down this road. There is a new road. See what we would not notice. Let maybe the way that the Lord is going to lead us besides still waters is just in that slow, calming rhythm of a poetic flow that is peaceful. In this season of stress and worry and anxiety, we need the still waters of a poem. Instead of three points to success, we need to be able to rest in the poetic flow of His grace. How much do you think, uh, maybe this is analysis that that defies uh, or maybe this is a point that defies analysis, let me put it that way. How much of poetry is intellectual and how much is emotional? Mm. That, yeah, that's, that's very good. Usually my first drafts are emotional. Mm. It's my journal entry of desperation to God. Um, and many of them, that's, that's where they'll stay. They won't go anywhere else. Uh, but some of those that I wrote in the hospital when I was dying, I couldn't spell, but I was still writing prayers of psalmistic confession and desperation. Um, I went back to them. Some of them, I left them as they were and published them. Some of them are never going to be published anywhere. Um, but there are other poems that I see, you know, this could, this is for others also. And so I'll edit it and work on it and uh, make it not just for these eyes, but so they can be um, received better by the larger audience. When I talk to other writers, uh, between the two of us, I've done 20 books. You've done five or six or how many? Uh, 10 now. 10. I'm okay. Between the two 11. of us, yeah. between the two of us, we got 30 books. Um, I always tell other writers, uh, write the first draft with your heart. Yeah. Write the second draft with your head. Uh, one of the things that I think paralyzes writers and I think it paralyzes poets is perfectionism. Oh. They can't get past the first sentence because they can't, they can't get it perfect. And I always say, just let it flow. You can tidy it up later. Is that true with poetry oh, also? Yeah. yeah. Just re release it. You know, the, the, the rough draft, let it be rough. You know, the first draft, let it be ugly and raw. Um, because there will be things that come out that way. If we try to correct it before it comes out, we never get a chance to reveal to us what might be next. Good. I, yeah, I believe perfectionism is the paralysis of creativity. It you, is. You have to. Sometimes you just have to throw the paint up on the canvas. You can you try to <laughs> figure out what you're painting. <laughs> figure out what you're painting when you look at it. Say, oh, I meant to, I meant for that to be a horse. <laughs> yeah, and and as I'm writing poetry, there there have been so many times that, that what starts out as a just a prayerful, poetic uh, surrender to the Lord in my own issues. Then I notice that there's a deeper point um, that maybe I've taught to others and preached in a sermon or I've written in an article, but I need that myself. I need to find that again myself and I need to be I need to be healed that way. And, uh, and then I'm like, mm -mm, this is for me. And I didn't notice that. But the freedom that I have in those rough drafts where I'm not trying to correct too much too soon, um, then then the beauty of the next the next uh, draft is able to go in a different direction that it never would have gone if I hadn't have been willing to reveal it that way. The fact that you write it all, the fact that you write it all, that you can make a sentence and put it on a piece of paper 
I'm not mistaken about this. The fact that you can cognitively form a, a meaningful sentence and communicate that and write it on a piece of paper and say it aloud, yeah. the fact of that is a straight out miracle, isn't yes. it? Yeah. You know, we could say, well, Chris is not healed because he's still on medication and he has epilepsy. Uh, but but I like to look at the positive side of this because of the brain damage I have. I should not be able to do any of the things I'm doing. Wow. My Jewish neurologist, Dr. Hal Pinelis, who helped save my life, he said it this way. Um, he and I were sitting there at a restaurant in Orlando. I flew to Orlando and, and he did the introduction mm. for that book. We have audio version of Underwater because many people with brain damage cannot read. Uh, of course. So we have the audio book version of that. And my Jewish neurologist, Dr. Hal Pineless, did that. He, he did the audio of the intro that he wrote. But we're sitting there at a restaurant near the airport in Orlando and he's like holding my book Underwater. And and Mark, he's just pounding it on the top. I said, what's going on? He said, do you understand what this is? I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> I wrote the book. I understand what it is. He said, he said, no, there's two things. I said, okay, what? He said, there, there, there are two reasons that this book is here. Your stubbornness and your God. Mm. My Jewish neurologist said, you were able to write this book because of your stubbornness and your God. What he meant was I didn't give up. I had to do my part and get help from a speech therapist, the embarrassment of that. I, I, I spoke and wrote for a living, and now I had to. I was like a, a, a elementary school student having to learn how to do that again. Wow. That was humbling, but I had to be stubborn enough, stubborn in a positive way, to endure relearning how to read and write again. But even with all of the work, I could not do that without God. I could not do that without him. And he recognized that and gave God the glory. Yes. That's wonderful. Underwater, when encephalitis, brain injury, and epilepsy change everything. That's the, the title and the subtitle of this book. It does change everything, doesn't it? it everything. Does. There's not it's not like it changes some stuff. It changes. When it changes everything. everything. That's what it says on the cover. Yeah. Is that right? That is. That is right. It it, it changed it changed who I was into who I am. And learning to be better at this me. I have a good friend named Tony. And uh, he told me that the day that his uh, son was born with Down syndrome, he said it was the worst day of his life. Mm. I asked him, I said, what was the best day? He said, the day my son was born with Down syndrome. Mm. Mm. Wow. Powerful book. Underwater. I, I recommend it. I recommend all these books. Chris, I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you so world much. That you would come and be here. I thank God for what he's done in your life. It's, it's a, a miracle of grace and a miracle of healing and your creative output since then. Tell one more time, how can everybody get all these books, uh, underwater particularly, if you'd like the story of, of the healing that he's gone through from encephalitis and brain injury and epilepsy and, and his beautiful books of poetry. Uh, tell how people can get these. Yeah, you can pick up any of those on Amazon, um, my Amazon page, um, or go to my website, chrismaxwell.me. Uh, we have a few people um, that are uh, using the Pause with Jesus book as a as a devotional book. And a couple of the chapters I wrote in that, um, Mark, it just really got me because I was I was speaking at uh, a children's camp, a, a special needs camp, and I was doing the devotions. And as I was writing drafts of Pause with Jesus, I was speaking to all these families and these children with special needs. And then the the last night was uh, the night that they were 
it was like a talent night. And I can remember we were ending with a worship song with a young man with Down syndrome. And he sang so well because he couldn't sing the mm. way that we would define singing. Mm. So it totally changes one of the last chapters of the book because wow. I, I thought if we're going to pause it with Jesus as a church and as a culture, let's invite those people with all of their D's, all of their diseases and disabilities and disappointments to come and be a part of our church family. And if they can't sing, let's hand them the microphone because we may hear more from them than we do from our perfectionistic crafts that we design. And it, it affected me and it reminded me, I'm not okay, but that is okay. Praise God. That's right. That's right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, it's meant a lot to me. I believe it'll be a lot to our audience. Those of you who are regular listeners to the Leader's Notebook, let me just close with this. Uh, the American lust for perfect little lives, tidy little lives without any pain, without any poverty, without any problems, that lust can actually inhibit God's work at, at the greatest level in your life. Sometimes, as Chris says, you have to find yourself underwater before you can find the God who made the water. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.